Welcome to the official podcast of the Calcedon Foundation, a think tank for the self-governing Christian. In a time when Christians are looking for answers in revival, rapture, or the religious right, Calcedon presents a comprehensive biblical worldview that calls believers to their covenant responsibilities in order to advance Christ's kingdom in every area of life. Hello again. Welcome to the seventh edition of the Calcedon podcast. Today is October 11th, 2020, and we're going to explore the idea of reading and books. Now, why is that even topical? Well, we live in an age where people tend to get most of their information through television, social media. So there's a lot of watching and listening. But for most of Western civilization, People developed points of view and had perspectives based on the depth they went in to reading various ideas and perspectives. And if Calcedon is anything, it's a ministry that seems to attract readers, people who want to go below the surface and understand biblical law and the principles of the gospel better. Now, R.J. Rush Juni was an avid reader, and I think we're going to start today by asking Mark, who grew up in his household, what it was like to be around a man who relished reading as much as your dad, and how did you develop an appreciation for it yourself? Well, books were part of my life from early on. I'm not sure at what point I, I noticed that our house had a lot more books than other people's house, but you couldn't avoid it in our house. I can remember being very young, kindergarten or even younger, being able to point out the two books on the shelf that my father had written. And at that time, that would have been by what standard and intellectual schizophrenia. And so I knew that my father had actually written books and published books, but it was also quite obvious that books were important to him. And he highly valued them. And he was almost always in the possession of a book. He was almost always carrying a book when I was young. I was the youngest of six children. And uh, so I was at home when the other children had gone to school for a time. And I remember very distinctly going places with him, just the two of us, friends to the post office. He would run errands and so forth. And frequently we'd end up having to stand in line, for instance, a post office. Well, for much of his life, he would take a book just in case. And in that book, there would be a pencil and a ruler. And he would read the book and he would mark the book. And he would even be indexing the book with the pencil while he stood in line. The first time I went to Disneyland, it was just shy of my 10th birthday. And uh, my sisters and I went on the ride while dad waited for us. And he had a book. And while we were in line waiting for the ride or on the ride, he would be reading a book. Not too many people carry a book and read uh, while at Disneyland. So it was just part of my growing up. Dad was a reader and you couldn't get away from it. And periodically he would uh, ask us to help him find a book. He, he was, had a very good memory. It was perhaps not photographic, but it was a phenomenal memory. And if he was looking for a particular book, he would describe it to us. He said it's about half an inch thick. He'd tell us the color of the book, whether it had a dust jacket on it, and what to look for. And he'd give us all of a dime if we found it. But uh, books were just always an important part of our life growing up. And he taught us to respect books. Even our children's books, we had to treat with care. We didn't color in even our children's books. 
And so uh, it was just a part of growing up that uh, books were of value. And he always carried a huge briefcase. Uh, I think they called them barrister's bookcase. Very large, the size of a suitcase with a large leather flap that came up with large compartments. So I suppose they were called barrister bookcase because you put large items in it, like large files. And that would often be full of books. When he'd go to a meeting or something, he would not just have a simple set of notes, but he would have books that he might want to refer to. So it was uh, kind of ubiquitous in my upbringing from the beginning. You know, it's funny, you talk about him always having a book. And I remember on his 80th birthday, when we had that event to celebrate his birthday, and we presented him with this Feshrift, which was a number of different contributors. So we give him the book, he's on stage, and what does he do? He opens it up and starts reading it while he's on the stage. He didn't even give his thank you very much. He started reading it. And I remember thinking that is so Rush Dooney to read his gift book in front of, I don't know what, how many, 500 people. I don't know how many people were there, but it was just funny. So Martin, you obviously were introduced to Rush Dooney by means of reading a book. And I know, I think you encountered his book in a bookstore at one point and that began your interest in him. But my guess is you probably had an interest in reading prior to meeting R.J. Rush Dooney. Yeah, I had the advantage of being a voracious reader, probably from a uh, fifth grade forward. Uh, I had a strong appreciation for books, and the library was some distance, and it was a walk, about a two-mile walk to the library, back and forth to my home. And I always took the maximum amount of books that uh, they would allow you to check out on your little library card and from the public library and walk it home. And then, of course, I have to walk it back when I when the two weeks was over. And some of those books, I'd ask for extensions because they were big, thick books generally. And I was a young kid. Mom wanted me to get out and play in the sun. And of course, I was always uh, in my, with my nose in books instead, uh, or playing and practicing the piano and composing music. So I think part of that might be because my father, uh, it was a typesetter, Schriftsetzerei, as they say in the German. He was in Stuttgart in Frankfurt. And when he emigrated to America, in 55, it was with the intention of becoming a trade typesetter, which was done with linotypes. And he was a hand typesetter. He had to learn the linotype machines in the 50s. And he was involved with the Lockman Foundation. They uh, had his firm that he was working for as a journeyman uh, do the typesetting for the very first Amplified Bible. And my father got one of the very first ones off of the press run signed by the man who had assembled it, Mr. Lockman himself with gratitude for helping make sure the Bible was right. So he had an appreciation at that point. And I kind of, by osmosis, appreciated books because I saw what it took to create them, at least in the old days of uh, prior to digital typesetting and, and on-demand publishing that we are uh, enjoy today. But back then, it was a big deal. It was even a bigger deal. It was all done by hand. So you would, I started to appreciate the craftsmanship. And I realized that some people's ideas were worth the trouble to get them into a format that reflected the value of the ideas in the book. It was a leather covered, it was Smythe sewn, it was all these other steps that were taken to say, these ideas are important and they warrant this extra step. It might even be a book of fiction, but it might be an important piece of fiction. Orwell is important fiction for our day to day, and yet it's fiction is nonetheless, and yet the big fear is it's becoming nonfiction, for example. So these ideas, I think, should be presented in the form that shows that they will stand the test of time. You're going to put them in a format that shows that this generation thinks there need to be propagated to the next generation. And so I had this sense when I was encountering Rashtuni's writings that these were important volumes. And one of the first things I did, actually, was to offer free typesetting services, uh, even though I was fairly amateur at that point, to Dr. Rashtuni when I became aware of his work. 
by the way, it's almost, uh, I think it's amusing how it is that I came to get a uh, book by Dr. Rashoni in my possession. Is really on uh, a false representation by the books seller. <laughs> the man at uh, in Van Nuys Christian Discount Books said, uh, I asked him, I said, where would I find a systematic theology that's post-millennial? As I probably said many times, they had three on the shelves that qualified. There was one by Shedd and by Hodge and by Strong. And he says, here's one, that one you want, and it's Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical Law. And I kept looking at it and said, it doesn't look like a systematic theology. Oh, it is, it is. But it sure doesn't look like it. Oh, trust us. Well, I trusted them. I'm glad I bought it, but it was not true. It was not a systematic theology. It was a tremendous book on the application of a very um, uh, badly misapplied section of scripture, ignored even and neglected. And he opened it all the way up and applied it to the entire world. Now, here was an interesting idea. Here was an idea that was world-changing uh, because it reflected what God's own word was saying was supposed to happen, that his word would spread and the uh, law of God that guides our steps would be the path by which all men and women and children would walk by. So here was something where the entire world was contained in the volume of the book. And so, true, I've, my early books were all science books and music books, predominantly because I was going to be a physicist or I was going to be a musical composer. Both things were on the table. I was offered a scholarship to become a composer. And I ended up going into physics and then going into my dad's business for a while, then back into the sciences uh, in 1985, and finally a software programmer today. But the one constant has been the books, and Dr. Rechtoni's books uh, were the key piece of that puzzle because he was able to integrate all the pieces of the books on theology I'd written before. He once told me, he said, since you study the works of Warfield, you're going to have a very, very solid foundation for grappling with Scripture. So he appreciated that because he himself went through that same path. Reading Warfield was a big deal to him. Becoming familiar with Van Til, which he popularized, and then he kind of put the uh, boots on the ground for how Van Til's ideas, reflecting particularly on the destruction of autonomy, comes into play in our culture. So these books propagate these ideas. In preparing for the Arise and Build article that I have uh, written, I came across a, uh, a writer, I've had him before in my collection, he's uh, Thomas Manton, the guy that Spurgeon liked. <laughs> and he wrote a big book on Jude, very large because Jude only has 25 verses or so. And he makes a comment about books. He says, writing is a more public way of teaching, so people should not engage with it without a call from God. Now, that's interesting that he makes this comment. He says, you need a call from God to be writing because these th the ideas that are going to be put down in writing are going to be a form of public teaching that's going to go beyond the scope of maybe the city you're in, it's going to go on beyond the generation that you're writing to, it's going to speak to future generations. And so here we have it that uh, these ideas that Manton was talking about come to a, a head with Dr. Reshtuni because in him we find a confluence of all these ideas. He was bringing, restoring Puritan ideas that exist in all these big fat books on the shelves, but we didn't know how to apply them to our situation. So what Dr. Rashtuni says is here's this huge, vast area of knowledge, and here's how to apply the Word of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And where do we find most thoughts expressed? Well, they can be expressed in the public debate, but that can be very caustic <laughs> and hard to take nowadays. Or it can be found in books where we can actually contemplate and think and dig deeper, and then really apply that and make that a foundation for our lives. So I think this is why the books are important, and that's why I've been attracted to Dr. Rashtuni's books ever since I first encountered them. And uh, I became convicted that in these kinds of approaches to applying the scripture to our current day situation is the key to the future. It's not without reason that people say those who don't read can't lead. That doesn't speak well for some politicians nowadays, does it? But the reality no, is you, you would need to be able to read 
because you need to understand where you came from to know where you're going. I think Dr. Rashtuni, therefore, was singular as a scholar in this respect. And uh, that is why his books form a pivotal part, at least, of my library. Now, my library is grown by Lisa and Bonds beyond Rashtuni, but that's because of Rashtuni. It's not because in, in its own right. And now I'm able to frame everything and understand it properly, uh, right. which is to say, I have a worldview that was kind of poorly formed, not so much crippled, but simply not mature. But he matures your worldview so that now that when you look out on the world and the things of the world, you actually are seeing it the way God would see it. You don't see it from a humanistic point of view or an autonomous point of view. You see it from a theonomic point of view, and you see God's hand moving everything toward God's purpose and not man's. Man's purpose is to be confounded, all of it, but right. God's will not. And that's the biggest story you can write about, and the biggest thing that could appear in a book is that story. Right. Now, I was born in the television generation, and so were you both. And it seems that as people began to rely more and more on visual media, that there was a lessening of an appreciation for books and reading books. And Calcedon, when we did the various conventions and conferences, we would have our bumper sticker and our banner that would say, read Rush Dooney. Mark, why do you think it's important to read your father rather than hear people talk about what your father said? Well, we have a lot of my father's audio and a little bit of, of video, but he never considered his uh, audio, which was recorded for many years, to be particularly important because he was uh, old school and he believed that what he said was eventually going to be in his writings. And he definitely believed in the power of the written word to, to change minds. Audio is sort of between <laughs> video and the written word. In TV, it's very easy to, to see something in a movie and be moved by it, to see something on television and to think that it has a great impact on you. But that kind of image can very quickly disappear because you don't do much thinking when you're immersed so much in the images produced on the screen. Whereas the written word obviously requires thought. It requires a thought process and an effort to read it, and therefore, it goes through your mind. It has to go through your thinking before you can even observe it, whereas you can be more, much more passive when you're looking at the video. The audio is good, but it's easier for your mind to drift even when you're on the audio. So my father never thought that he, even his audio was particularly important because he was very much a believer in the written word. That's how his mind was changed, and that's how it developed and therefore, that's the legacy he thought that he would leave would be definitely in his writing. Even before he began his writing career, he had ambitions to write because he thought that was the best way to leave an influence. Do either of you think that there is a limitation on people's appetite for reading because of all the uh, exposure to what you just described, Mark? Or Martin, what do you think? Let Mark go ahead and answer that because I had a, a follow-up on what he was commenting on, but I can wait at the moment. I think people, too, are are very definitely inundated with uh, reading material, although it's relatively shallow. Our inboxes are full of things. A lot of people want to present their things through emails and so forth. And I know, like a lot of people, I have to go through my daily emails, and when I sit down in the morning and open up my inbox, if there are 70 or 80 things there, I pick which ones I'm even going to open because quite a few of them I never even open because 
they're this or that, and I pretty much know that they're not particularly important for my attention when I have other things on my uh, agenda. That is a partial problem because the the even the written word now comes very cheaply with computers. That wasn't always the case because it used to be that the written word was very precious because, as Martin just intimated uh, earlier, typesetting was a very difficult process, and to create a book required a tremendous amount of labor. It was very difficult to create a book and to typeset it, and then printing was very relatively expensive. Today, those factors have been somewhat obviated, so we can produce the written word. But in the meantime, thanks in part to television and just our importance attributed to things in our modern culture, the value people have placed on the written word is less. People's patience to sit down and read a book and to think and to develop their thinking around that is less than it was today. So it's a, it's a little bit harder to communicate with people in that respect, although it's easier than ever to put material before them. And we have the prevailing notion that the current visual media, uh, you have attention span issues, you have things that can be reduced to minimum sound bites, minimal ideas. Uh, we see the dumbing down of America that's been documented by for example, Samuel Blumenfeld, one of our former staff writers, the late Dr. Simon Blumenfeld, folks like John Taylor Gatto, who wrote a book, Dumbing Us Down, where he documents exactly what the mission is. It's to make people in, incapable of deep thought and critical thinking and arranging ideas and determining the importance and the meaning of things so that that meaning then is dictated from on high to them so they become incapable of thinking their way out of a wet paper bag. And so in one sense, as Bruce Short, one of our authors uh, has uh, said, and, and others have said, the public education system is not a failure. It's a tremendous success of what it's supposed to do, which is to churn out this kind of product. And of course, therefore, Calcedon is bucking the trend by trying to work with the folks that want something better, but it doesn't come easily to them because they've been deprived of the tools uh, necessary to uh, push this stuff off. And it's not that all of them are necessarily uh, slothful in their thinking or in their hearing, as Hebrews 5 puts it, and that's a condemnation that you know, you're slothful in your hearing, you're going to have trouble interpreting the scripture and applying it. But sometimes uh, we have to bring these people up to where they need to be. That's why the homeschooling revolution that your father had such a huge hand in is a part of the solution, because those children who rise up through that particular system and done properly, which is what the goal is, they do quite well at uh, critical thinking. And they receive books and are interested in them because they see the value in those things. Because, And why do you see value in something? Because it has meaning to you. You see, if something has no meaning to you, where's the value in it? It's meaningless and something that's meaningless by definition, casual, trivial, or to be dispensed with because it's a waste of time. But if it's something meaningful, then you will invest time. You will form convictions over the matters that are discussed. And I think that's the key. And most people do not form convictions over most things that are presented in the video format. Uh, to change someone's mind in a soundbite is very, very rare. All you're going to do is feed people's confirmation bias. Cal Seaton is here basically to cut through everyone's confirmation bias and say, we have to rethink the scriptures here entirely uh, because we've uh, basically not applied them properly for several centuries. And that's on us. And then we need to resume that work in earnest. One of the mechanisms by which that work can proceed apace is by people imbibing and reading the books that give them the toolkit then and a worldview to embrace things and to organize information. I was just reading in Rashtuni's 
uh, Corinthians commentary pending, as we say here. Uh, and he's commenting on the final verse of uh, 1 Corinthians 2, and it reads here, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And he says, this word instruct is simbibazo. He actually puts the Greek word in there, and he says, that actually means to arrange and, and explain and connect things to their proper meanings. So that's what's actually at the heart here. And that's what, when you have a biblical worldview, when you have the mind of Christ, when you throw out autonomy and adopt a theonomous or the, theonomic position, he uses the word theonomous here just to make it correspond to autonomous, theonomous. When God is central to your thinking, then you are able to assemble these things and put the meanings together with the, the events, with the ideas, and they all cohere in Christ. They cannot cohere in any other way. So the meaning therefore fuels the essence of the value, and the value therefore propagates the book into the future. So sometimes a book will be unread for centuries. I'm thinking of Pierre V. Ray's works because they were written in an old language, old French, that nobody knew. He wasn't writing in Latin like Calvin did. He wrote in the old French. Now that they're being translated into English for the very first time and published by the Zurich Foundation, people are seeing here is the proto rashtuni Here's someone who uh, actually had the goods back then who was essentially a theonomist and presuppositional in his thinking. Uh, so much so that we're saying, what happened? Why did we lose this thread? Well, we haven't really because he's back on the table. And those books need to have a for, for firmer reading because then you realize at the dawn of the Reformation, Rushdie's ideas were already present in Pierre Viret, but they weren't known in our language. Again, the, the language barrier created this false sense that these ideas didn't exist. They existed and they're back to roost. So you mentioned the translation of Pierre Verre's work into English, for example, that now we have been the beneficiaries of it. And one of the things that is happening now is that we have people in other countries, whether it's in South America or people in Europe or even people in Asia, are saying, we need to have this material available to our people. Now, Mark, I know you don't speak all the languages of Europe, South America, or Asia, but you have made it a priority to keep your father's books in print. And it's much more than just being a publisher. I would say that the fact that his books are still in print has everything to do with the fact now that we have people who want to translate it. Tell me what you think in terms of Calcedon and Ross House books as a publishing ministry. When you write something, you then have the problem of how you're going to get it published. And if you go back half a century, then you were faced with uh, the issue that you had to present it to a commercial publisher. The question a commercial publisher always asked was, will this sell? Will I make money off of this printing? Is it something that bookstores will want? Is it something that, that libraries will want? Um, how many of these can I sell in the next few years? And so they have a constant stream of new titles that they have they present every year, and they have to sell a certain number of them in order to, to turn a profit. That becomes a problem when you're really using the book as a communication method and uh, of educating people. And if it or if you're uh, what you're writing about is from a different perspective, one that's not necessarily popular. So. If you're bucking the trend in any way, you are no longer marketable, at least in profitable numbers. And this becomes a problem for the small publisher and the author of uh, such works. There have been 
publishers who tried to do things on a small scale and buck the trend. PNR was one, and there were others, for instance, uh, in, the, in the free market. Some of those were subsidized, though. Volcker Fund, that for which my father worked for a couple of years, subsidized a lot of the free market books in the post-war era up into the 60s. And dozens of those books were produced. And many of the men who wrote those books were being subsidized by grants by that foundation because it was not a moneymaker. And some of those books have had a tremendous influence. PNR published some books that were not very popular, that, that cut uh, across the grain, as Martin was saying, of our modern culture. One of them was the Genesis Flood. When my father first read that manuscript, he was a manuscript reader for uh, PNR, and he told PNR, you need to publish this. Moody Press had not wanted to publish it as is. He was too critical of the evolutionary perspective. It was very cut and dried, and they didn't want, they wanted it changed and heavily edited if they would even consider it. And my father told PNR, you need to publish it, publish it as is. And they did. And it was one of the more important Christian books of the 20th century. It really revived the creationist movement. And it gave birth to all the modern creationist ministries. And so, and yeah, but that was an exception. A lot of books never do sell large numbers, which means it takes an influx of money into the, the, the book industry that's never going to be recouped in sales. We have books in our warehouse that have been there for 35 years. They never sell in large numbers, and they may never, but they may be important books, and so we continue to print them. A lot of our books, when we they, goes, they go out of print, we will print uh, an inexpensive paperback uh, edition that we can sm print in small quantities. People used to say, oh, don't go to paperback, stay with hardback. But the, the, it's, it's very difficult to do that and keep large numbers of titles available in hardback. But we can keep them available. And the reason we keep publishing is because we have a message that still needs to be heard. And this is a way, and even an inexpensive paperback has a lifespan that means that uh, that book can have a tremendous amount of influence years into the future. I've had many number of people who have said that their first exposure to Russ Dooney was a single book, an obscure book, one of his lesser known titles that they happened to pick up and, or, and they, they found some footnotes or they found a footnote to an obscure book. And they had difficulty finding the book because they'd never heard of this publisher or the author. And they had to spend some, some real effort to find Rush Dooney and Rush Dooney books. And so I said it is my purpose to keep these books alive. The reason is that I believe my father's books are going to have more impact on the future than they've had to this point in time. If it's just a, a, an interesting theological perspective, then it's not worth it. But if the church needs to address these issues moving into the future, if our culture is failing in many areas uh, that my father addressed, and the church has things that it can speak to on these issues because of its application of the, the Bible and God's truth, then it's very important to keep these ideas alive. And in fact, I think my father's influence has grown. It's 
kind of diverse and a lot of people use him, but they don't, you know, uh, necessarily refer to him a great deal, but his ideas have becoming a little bit more mainstream in Christian circles. And so the influence of his books has really been very important. And what the Holy Spirit does with these, we don't know. But we're just trying to keep these things alive for and perhaps another generation will make better use of them than the past generation. So let me uh, point out that the situation that Mark describes differs from nation to nation. In some places, the ideas that Dr. Rashtuni is expressing, they have to have an entry point. I'm reminded that's four, four or so years ago, uh, we published it in Chalcedon Report, we had started to seed a library in India, a theological library. It was actually a, a seminary of sorts that uh, had a facility at a university there. Dr. Uh, Johnson Phillip, normally we'd say Philip Johnson, but it's Johnson Phillip, Dr. Johnson Phillip, uh, is the one who requested the materials, and they actually built the library based on all the four big packages that I sent them of our materials. So they have a complete Russian library, and what they do is they had pastors coming in groups of six to seven or eight, and they would select one or two volumes, and those pastors would then read those volumes and then teach them to the other pastors uh, and then it would go, it was almost a top-down situation because there were so few books to get into the people. But what they did is started to translate Dr. Rashtuni's works into some of the various Indian tongues in India. And they have quite a few of them, as you may imagine. So uh, that process by which when they get excited about it and they realize this book is important, these ideas are critical for our nation too, not just America or, or Israel, say, ancient Israel, as some people like to claim but rather contemporary India needs this material and the application of these ideas. We see it in our politics. We see it in our economics. We see it in our culture. At that point, these ideas have left their own. So they enter and form a library at first, but then it starts. that becomes the point, like water in the crack, and you freeze the, wa- the, the water into ice, and it cracks everything open. Dr. Rashtuni is like a lot of water and cracks around the world that's being frozen and breaking open the autonomous and humanism. Uh, at that point. And we're seeing it in nations like, for example, uh, India. Now, here's one of the most populous nations in the world. And here, Dr. Rashtuni is making interesting inroads. And by the way, those pastors are our hardcore Plymouth brethren. So t- that's a surprise to us because we figure, well, why would dispensationalists have any interest? They do. They do very much so. And it's part of the fact that there's some water in the crack that's freezing and breaking their dispensationalism. But you see, Dr. Rashtuni doesn't make a frontal assault necessarily on dispensationalism in his books, but it's implicit as these ideas start to form and your worldview develops, all of a sudden you see the incompatibility with dispensationalism and you start to see postmillennial ideas make a lot more sense given this worldview. And so we are not only are we reaching people far, far away, simply by using U.S. postal global mail to get the material in there. But once there, it has an effect. It snowballs and starting in each place it can snowball differently. Some of the translators that we featured in a, in a recent Calcedon report from Italy and, and in the Portuguese language in Brazil uh, and the Russian translation of institutes, uh, we see that people uh, have a vision. They, they have a hunger for taking these important ideas that they value and have a conviction over and bringing them to the people in their language. And so the translations happen. Mark is very free and when he's approached, can we translate this book and these pieces into our language? And Mark basically makes it as easy as possible without giving away the store, so to speak. 
Uh, it's an extremely generous situation. We're not in it for the money because we're really here for the ideas and for the kingdom of God propagating. We're not going to put any obstacles in front of that. Uh, so, so long as that is everyone's interest, it moves along a pace. And so these individuals start to take the ideas back into their languages, which may not otherwise have been penetrated, except someone read a book by Rashtuni and saw the value in it and wanted to translate it and approaches us. And we say yes. And then that book has its own. And then more books follow. You see a stack of books <laughs> in the Portuguese language. I know that translator and others like it also do work with uh, Warcraft and others. When they see value, they want to propagate it into the next language. And that's important. And we, and we need to see more of it. So I think it's important for Chalcedon supporters and those who are just becoming familiar with the ministry of Chalcedon to realize that when they give to our ministry, what they're doing is making it possible that other people will run into Rushduni like you did, Martin, and like I did. And most recently, the focus had been on producing not only Dr. Rushduni's books, but his position papers that he did over the years and articles that he wrote for the Chalcedon Report. And those came into three volume sets, each one individually. And I'm currently going through the set of his position papers. And I have to remind myself as I look at the date, because the date is always included, that he didn't write this yesterday. Now, I know he didn't write this yesterday because we're going on, you know, almost 20 years since he passed away. So I'm for sure I knew he didn't write this yesterday. But his insights are so amazing that believe it or not, it gives a calm. It's so easy today to get all upset about what's happening. But when you read Rush's commentary, which is always faithful to scripture and pointing out that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. I mean, you could probably take everything he ever wrote and sum it up with that portion of Psalm 127. And so I think it's going to end up emboldening people to realize that we have to look beyond a 2020 election or what's going, which party is in place because we have a future to build and it's exciting work. So that's why I personally um, am very grateful for the legacy publications. And I'm really appreciative, Mark, that you made that a really high priority. Yeah. Yeah. The point is that these works are proving to be timeless. Uh, I was just marveling two days ago, I encountered a, uh, climate change report that laid out a catastrophe that was going to happen within the uh, next 11 years. Uh, and, it, and it was very detailed and absolutely certain. And it was dated 1989. So we see that when humanists make their wild pronouncements and try to analyze things, they fall flat on their face. The egg is there still sticking to this day. Dated material in humanism is always dated and sometimes comically so. But properly done theology is timeless, and it is a more uh, applicable today than it would be the, the year it was written. And that's how Dr. Restoni's material seems to cheat death, uh, the death of irrelevance, because it continues to be irrelevant and more so. Uh, and that's why we value the ideas, because they, again, restore meaning. I think uh, part of that comfort that you mentioned when you read these things, a sense of peace, is because meaning is restored. And in a biblical meaning, we realize that the wicked will not prevail in what they're doing, and uh, that God's plan is going to overrule everything that uh, men might be trying to put in place to uh, impede his kingdom's progress. As uh, Neander said, and was quoted back in 1983 at the Median Arts Conference, 
everything that is intended to be an obstacle to the kingdom of God only furthers its progress and pushes it farther down as it snowballs. So that's really the reality. And that is a comfort. And I think that's where some of the peace comes from, is that we're not looking at someone flailing around trying to find meaning. We're rather seeing someone who's anchored to Scripture, applying biblical meaning to everything, and it all holds together. It all holds together. So Dr. R.J. Rushdoony was singular in this respect. And I think this is why the, there is not only importance in preserving the legacy and extending it, but there's a purpose behind that too, because more people who understand how God sees things, and they are able then to look at the Scripture in a similar way that is comprehensively. I think that's the run ticket that uh, Dr. Rushdoony stamped for all of us. He made the Scripture comprehensive. He made it formidable. He said all of it applies to everything. You don't need to slice it and dice it into little pieces. Rather, the whole thing applies to all of life, and that's the key. Faith for all of life, and therefore there's no corner in which humanistic man can hide or in which God's enemies can succeed, because in all events, they'll be overthrown and be shown to be fools for their rebellion against the, the king, because every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And that's a powerful assurance that we have, and Dr. Rashtuni brings it to life in all of his writings. So, Mark, Martin mentioned that he's currently going through the commentary on Corinthians, which isn't in our book list right now because it's not been published. How many other unpublished manuscripts are there that still need to see the light of day? There are several, all of which are, need some degree of, of editing. There are, and there's quite a stack of various talks that he gave that would have to be organized and it would have to be determined how they would best be published in, in a series of, of smaller books or, or booklets. But there are a few more manuscripts. You know, you said that your father sort of played down his sermons and lectures. Well, I hear over and over again that people say the value of his lectures obviously is the content. And those that content usually ended up in books in some way, shape, or form. But what people tend to like the best are the Q&A periods where people ask him questions. And not only does he give very cogent answers, but sometimes you just have to have your jaw drop on his depth of understanding that he can talk about so many things in so many periods of history that them, even just on their own, and then not only the question and answer, but there are people who comment on they love the way your father prayed in these lectures, from his opening prayer to his closing prayer. I, I think with the advent of being able to hear these lectures on our website and things like that, I think maybe he was wrong that his audio lectures weren't going to have an impact, because I know for some people they have tremendous impact. They're more important than he realized because of the fact that uh, many people today are, are unable or disinclined to read a long book. And so it's a different form of communication, and it's an important one to maintain. So I'm very grateful that many of his lectures have survived. Unfortunately, most of them were recorded with rather, relatively inexpensive and poor quality equipment. Even when they had a decent reel-to-reel tape recorder, they had a very inexpensive microphone. And so the quality of those is not as good as it might have been even in the day, fortunately. I think it's something that could be forgiven. 
Now, uh, Ford has mentioned that he thinks Dr. Rashtuni's audio lectures on Revelation are much better than the written commentary in Thy Kingdom Come. So um, different strokes for different folks, it seems, because uh, apparently there's material in one that's not found in the other, and uh, it's presented in a very winning way post-millennial uh, joke there, and uh, consequently, uh, it, it resonates with people in a way that perhaps the book might not, because uh, he was very picky about what would go in the written book, uh, and of course, and he'd make sure the footnotes were correct, uh, and it was uh, a presentation, and he intended not to want to be long-winded. Now, this might be surprising to us when we see a stack of books that's you know four feet wide that he's, his production. He's not long-winded. No, not on any given topic. He generally is not. He, he, he liked to get in and out and make the point, especially if it's a commentary. And his revelation was not a verse-by-verse commentary per se. So there's another case where we have the benefit of a very, very powerful audio lecture series that even your husband uh, thinks is top-notch and needs to be listened to by all Chalcedon folks. If you haven't, dig in and, and try it out. Other cases, we have like a commentary on Genesis where it only exists, so far as we can see, in a written form, the audio tapes, if they ever existed, no longer are accessible. We don't know where they might be. Unless Mark is knows something I don't know at this point. But up until the last time we checked, there was no audio for the Genesis commentary, though we know they were delivered as lectures at some point. Perhaps there was no provision to record them, or the recordings have been lost or were poor enough quality that they, they couldn't be salvaged. No, the, uh, the, he was so busy and he was so productive in his last. Um, 20 years, except for maybe the last five years when he was becoming increasingly ill. Uh, He was just churning out chapter after chapter and putting them in different files according to the different books that he was uh, writing on. Because he was, as I've said many times, he was basically an essayist. So all of his chapters pretty much stand alone. And he would decide he was going to write on a topic and he'd start a file folder for it towards a book and he would uh, write something on it and he'd put it in that file folder and sometimes it would accumulate a second file folder for the same project and those would accumulate on his shelf until he was decided it was time to publish this particular work. Well, when he died, I tried to go through and start organizing these and I had an entire bookcase full of, of manuscripts and we've worked through most of those, uh, but we still have a few to go. But I enjoyed many of his audios, returning to to the audios. In his last years, he could not read his own writing because of his eyesight and was failing because of his uh, diabetes and cataracts. And so even though he would write a few pages of things on that, he couldn't read it. So on Sunday mornings, and he was then in his wheelchair, he would basically speak extemporaneously. I really enjoyed those extemporaneous things because I think he was not trying to do anything in a formal way, and I think he was, he was communicating very, very well, and he had a breadth of knowledge. And so I, many conversations I had for him, I wished that I had recorded or I had written extensive notes on them because he was just full of tremendous amount of information. And you see, he did not start writing until he was in his 40s or, or so, but he read voraciously. So when he was ready to write, and he had always thought that he would someday write, he had this wealth of knowledge to work for. And sometimes he would say something, and you'd say, well, could that possibly even be true? I'd just give you a, a my, very minor example. We were talking about family history once. 
And he mentioned to me that the Rushdunis and the Urartan kings, the kings of the kingdom of Ararat, sometimes referred to as Armenia in the Bible, but was really before Armenia, the kingdom of Ararat or Urartu. We come from those kings, and the name Rushduni refers to several kings that went by the name of Rusas or Rusas. And he mentioned to me that they had developed this extensive irrigation system. I thought maybe he was just bragging on family history. He says those irrigation systems were considered one of the marvels of the ancient world. I had never heard of this so-called marvel of the ancient world. And he said, they're still in use today. And I thought, really? Well, did he read that in a 19th century book? And it was some water ditch somewhere that may have uh, some old writer had, had seen. Well, when I went to uh, Turkey, to that part of the world, we were talking with the, our guide who was half Turkish and half Kurdish. He referred to the ancient Urartans irrigation system, which is still in use. And now, when you're talking 30, 40 years ago, it wasn't that easy to find information on ancient Urartu because most of what we know about ancient Urartu is, was only discovered in the mid-20th century onward. And yet, that was in, somewhere in the recesses of his mind, he had filed this information, and I thought, oh, that's just too conveniently interesting to possibly be true. And actually, now you can go on the Internet and, and read about these ancient Urartan kings and their irrigation system, and it'll even show you pictures of this ancient irrigation system that still carries water. Well, I'll give you a flip side to that. When I initially, when I came to work with Calcedon, I was doing typesetting and we always had to find something to use for the backliner for the dust jacket. And so I would take something that he had written in the book and used it as a backliner. And I say, is this okay? And he'd say, you understand things very well. This is very well written. And I'd say, I, I know Rush, you wrote it. And he'd say, I did. <laughs> So he wasn't prideful, particularly in that regard, but it always made me laugh because I just lifted something that he had said in the book and I put it for the backliner. So Martin, I know there was a period of time that you were actually helping with the typesetting of the books and keeping things going forward. And I think your role at Calcedon has developed in sort of being the resident Rushduni scholar. And so you go through all the books before they actually hit the printer. Talk a little bit about your part in preserving Dr. Rushduni's things and then where you see the future going for publishing at Calcedon. Well, the, uh, the key, of course, is to get everything that he wrote into print and in a good, clean copy so that it reflects on how we at Calcedon value it. And so others where people will catch the same vision and say, these are important ideas. We're glad they're not clouded with the typographic errors and whatnot that were introduced in trying to take them from manuscripts, get them into print. So there's a mechanical aspect of it, but then there's also the fact that these ideas are important. I'll talk about the Corinthian commentaries. It tells us a lot that Dr. Rishduni labeled that entire series of lectures on First and Second Corinthians, godly social order. See, that's really what's behind the book of the Corinthians. We usually think of it as church problems and solutions and some talks about gifts of tongues and some last days stuff in the 15th chapter, et cetera. And then some more follow-up on this stuff on the second. He sees godly social order. It's framed in a very, very different way. And so every time that he dips into a section of scripture, we're getting a perspective that's been lost to us. 
I'd say that that kind of depth of understanding, uh, you could find it in some of the Puritans, but not so cogent as to be applicable to our era. But Dr. Reshtuni makes it applicable to our era. Uh, and that's the key. So uh, when we get a, a new book by Reshtuni, say, on, and especially if it's a Bible commentary, like it is in the case of First and Second Corinthians, we get a whole new approach to a major chunk of the Pauline letters. And I think that's tremendously valuable. And I'm kind of on the hook here because there's, they've been stopped in my house here for a while to do the, the uh, technical read through and get them right. And then I can pass them up to get them to, to print. But I had the manuscript down there on, on, on the ground. I pulled it out of the car because I was reading it and uh, proofing it earlier today in the car you know, when I was parked. Because I think it's a very, very important book and it's way too long sitting, getting it right. But I want to get it right so that then people can see what was he up talking about when he talked about godly social order and said it can be found and explained and the pluses and minuses and the battles over it uh, took place in these Corinthian letters where Paul is dealing with this kind of situation. So that's what we get. We get the benefit of a whole new look outlook on something that we thought we knew. We, are, we had already pigeonholed and put the First Corinthian, Second Corinthian letters in boxes. And exegetes have, we have great commentaries on them. I'm not saying that Hodge is bad or that some of the other authors that have written on them have done a poor job. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is light in those letters that hadn't been uh, pulled out of it yet until Dr. Resh Dooney got his hands on them. There was a reason why when he wrote Romans, if you read the preface that he wrote to Romans, he says, I waited a long time before I decided to take a crack at Romans because I kind of had a fearful attitude going forward because I wanted not to botch it. I wanted to get it right because it's such an important a book. And I said, and I believe the Reformation only scratched the surface of the book of Romans. And that's how he approached it. And I think what we'll see in the Corinthian books, that no one's seen them yet except the, the proofing staff here at Chalcedon, we'll see something even more powerful than what he did with Romans. They introduced the whole concept of godly social order as is walked through real-world cases that Paul is dealing with in real time uh, as these letters are flying back and forth between himself and Corinth. I think that's huge. And so it's not just that he was able to look at the world situation we have and speak to it authoritatively from Scripture, like a prophet or prophet-like, if you will, but also that when he opened up Scripture, he opened it up for us today in a way that very, very few people do. I've seen this kind of thing in people like Klaus Schilder when he wrote on the crucifixion of the Lord, the trial of the Lord, the temptation of the Lord, suffering of the Lord, that the massive Schilder trilogy has aspects of uh, the final week of Christ's life that you will not find anywhere else. And Dr. Reshtuni made a comment to that effect. He says, uh, once you read it, you'll realize you'll never read anything else like it. So he liked Schilder, uh, and so, so, so do I for that matter. And there's a reason for it, because it's powerful, and it's going to stand the test of time, because it reflects the truth of what was really going on the final week that Christ perished and then conquered death. But the depth of it is, is, is huge. And so Rushtuni, like Schilder, now is going after First and Second Corinthians. You could go through the audio tapes, but I don't think it's nearly as good as reading it. Because again, there's something about reading being an active process. You're engaging the ideas and concepts. You're floating in and you're controlling and you're reading. You can reread a sentence. And audio is kind of passive. You're following the argument, but it's more of a passive flow as opposed to reading, double-checking the footnotes like I have to do. <laughs> but I enjoy doing it because I say, where do you get that idea? Who documented that? That's an unusual, for example, uh, interpretation of the word simbibazo. We just talked about it in First Corinthians, uh, the last verse of uh, chapter 2. Uh, why did he think that instruct is not a good inter interpretation and he explains why? Uh, that there's a better reading of that verse that actually shows what Paul is up to. Sometimes we are 
crowded in, hemmed in with traditional interpretations and translations that harm. In fact, Dr. Rishtuni made a point of saying that one of the root words of the word translator is traitor, someone who is being a traitor to the meaning of scripture. One thing Dr. Rishtuni was not was a traitor to scripture. He would rather uh, fight and even take it on the chin if he was wrong about something. But he said, let's, let's bring the whole word of God unalloyed, unadulterated, uh, undiluted to bear on our problems like Paul did with the problems of his day. And I think that's what Dr. Rishtuni is doing. So he's basically he's replicating Paul's instruction set, Paul's insights for us today, even as he's expositing what Paul was saying to the Corinthians. So I think that's where the value of these materials are. It's not just that he's writing on cultural things. He writes on science, he writes on philosophy, he writes on history, particularly economics. But also when he opens up scripture, there's something very authoritative and enlightening there. He is bringing treasures new out of old treasures, if you will. And they're very, very, and they're the treasures we need at this point in time. And that's why I like, I enjoy laboring on it. And I enjoy even better finishing the labor so we can get into the hands of our Chalcedon uh, readership and solicitor and all those who support us. Well, I have one student in my class that I do weekly with women who really appreciates all the accuracy of the footnotes because she's the person who goes out and buys the books that are footnoted and then she reads them. I don't think there's probably too many that do that, but she certainly does. Now, we've been criticized occasionally because if there's a whole bunch of footnotes, people will say, well, your faith reduces to by their footnotes, you shall know them, uh, as opposed to by their fruits, you shall know them. But there's uh, a place in the time for the footnote. Uh, some scholars think that uh, Rush Juni's influence will be measured by how many times his name appears in footnotes after he's passed away. I think that number is on the rise. If you look at a, a wonderful book by Dr. Joseph Boot of the Ezra Institute out of Canada, book is called The Mission of God. It's like one out of every five footnotes points to Rashtuni's work. So he leans very heavily on Rashtuni. And I think this in turn makes his book all the more powerful because he's standing on Rashtuni's shoulders to see a little bit farther in areas that he otherwise would not have had the uh, advantage of that height of looking down on situation and understanding it better. So the more I think people would be quoting Rashtuni, the better off they're going to be for it. And he also had to be selective because he was not infallible. We made that point all the time. We we're certainly not upholding him as, as an infallible prophet of the Lord. But he was a very valuable man in what he did. And, he, and as, as any human being is, he has his flaws and he has his blind spots and weak spots. It's uh, our ben, you know, If we would have as, as few blind spots as he had, we'd do really well. <laughs> so it's very easy for us at this point of view to, to throw pot shots at him and saying, well, he blew this and he was wrong about that. Okay, what about all the good stuff he did? How many children, people are homeschooling today because of Dr. Rushdoony who wouldn't have their kids in a public school? Think twice before you throw that stone at Dr. Rushdoony. You know, we should be grateful and on our knees thanking the Lord that he sent such a man at such a time as we needed him to contend for the faith once delivered, especially where it was under direct attack, you say, with the public school system and the courts. So, and, and one day that will appear in more and more books as well. We're going to hear that story, and it's going to be told to children. It says, you know, your, your homeschooling process is unmolested because Dr. Rashduni rode out to battle, and he did it for free. Right, exactly. Mark, I, I have a plea, and then I have a question. You said that there were a number of conversations that you had with your dad that you wish you had recorded. Well, since you can still remember them, I hope that you get them down on paper because I'm sure they would be valuable to the rest of us. But my question to you is, in those conversations with your dad, 
Did he have any regrets? Did he ever tell you he wished he had written about something that he didn't get around to or wish that he had approached something differently than he had? He was asked things to that effect later in life. And I had a few conversations, but he wasn't one to, to really want to go back and, and second guess himself. And um, he, I think he felt that he had fought the good fight. I think uh, his influence kind of speaks for itself. If you, if you look at uh, where he come, came from originally growing up in the Presbyterian Church USA and that he battled that until he decided it was a losing battle. You look at what he said about education before most people wanted to hear um, him criticize public education. If you look at where the homeschooling movement is today because of in part what he did in the courtroom to, to, to defend it. If you look at the, the state of you know, modern eschatology and his emphasis on post-millennialism, if you look at uh, the theonomy movement, which he revived with his Institutes of Biblical Law, the whole ethical basis of everything, you know, it was kind of a lost debate for a very long time until he revived it. Then in one area after another, I, I think he accomplished more than most men. And so he was not one to revisit what he had said or, or how he had said it. I don't think he had changed his theology or his thinking in too many areas. I asked him once if he you know, had changed his thinking in any areas. And he thought about it. We were driving in the car once and he said, you know, I maybe a little bit about the free market because much of the free market is from a strictly economic perspective. And it doesn't take into account the, the, the ethical factors. And so he said, uh, you, you have to temper your defense of the free market with the ethical aspects of, of the Christian duty as well. But he said, I, I don't spend much time second-guessing myself. And by the way, that instance, I believe, to a large extent, was motivated by dialogue with Otto Scott. Dr. Rashtuni tended to be more very strong free market, and, Dr. and Otto Scott tended to push back against it with some levels of protectionism as a defense against certain practices. And uh, though Dr. Rashtuni didn't come all the way over to Otto's side, it certainly tended to nuance Dr. Rashtuni's thinking because he would then say, you know, I respect Dr. Otto Scott's position here. Um, there's something to be said for it, and therefore perhaps I should not be as dogmatic on this point. There are nuances here that I haven't taken into account. I've been dogmatic and ide ideological about it, and now there's more to it because the basis on Otto's objection was ethical. Uh, and if that's the case, then perhaps God's laws have been miswritten or been read in a very mechanical way, and he's willing to reconsider the argument. So that'd be one area where we have uh, growth, if you will, or at least acknowledgement of fallibility, which is healthy, right? And he had it. He uh, changed his mind on uh, at least one eschatological point uh, related to the victory of Christ being total or only partial at the tail end of history, and he moved Back to his original position, when he read Warfield in the 40s, he believed that Warfield was right. It's a total victory to the last man standing. There'll be no unconverted individuals to unregenerate men, no chaff encumbering the ground at the end of history before Christ returns. It's a total victory. But he said the amillennial hangover of a final apostasy had its impact on him through the writing of his 1970 commentary on Revelation. And then by the time he wrote his systematic theology in 1994, he reverted back 
to the idea of a complete and total victory, the world victory, he called it in the systematic theology. And then there was uh, unalloyed, perfect, total victory where all the, unre all the re unregenerate have long since died and we only have the regenerate men living at the time. So Christ's victories are total. He literally has no enemy to destroy except death when he returns. So he took that in its fullness finally. But you see this, this um, growth of his position. It mutated over time. Sometimes it responded to outside influences. The other time it responded to reconsidering the scripture and taking it as it's as uh, absolutely authoritative and not needing to be nuanced or, or tricked. By the way, that idea is interesting because when he comments on the Corinthians commentary about that verse that he, the Lord taketh the tricky or the crafty or the, the wicked in their craftiness, right? He says this, he, the context there, he says, those who are twisting the Bible and saying, this doesn't really apply. Uh, this is not the way to read the scripture. And he says, this is a crafty approach to scripture that's being criticized by Paul. And any, anyone who is trying to play these games, these crafty games with scripture, God will consume them for it. And God will show them to be false. And so, so too, when he realized that there was some craftiness in how people were explaining away scriptures that were very clear on the face of it, um, he would then reaffirm them in their doctrinal purity. Uh, so we see this notion that he was not a static thinker in any stretch. He was always growing. Sometimes he'd move back and forth between positions. Other times he would uh, have another thinker, iron sharpening iron between Otto Scott and himself. Lots of times Otto adopted a position that Rashtuni pushed that Otto did not originally hold. So two men working back and forth together, interesting things can happen because no one has a... Uh, monopoly on the truth, but between the two of them sharing, they might arrive at a, might arrive at a consensus that would be valuable to all of us to, to adopt as well, or at least to say, if these two guys agree on something, there must be something to say for the position. And so they lots of times put these things to writing, and hence the writing of books, there's no end, <laughs> but some of them are very important and we need to be discerning. We try to be discerning of what we publish here. Uh, and then we are also, and by the way, while we're on that topic of discerning and publishing, uh, I meant to say this earlier, but our philosophy of publication, Mark mentioned that uh, Jerry Stooney was instrumental in getting Mr. Craig to publish the Genesis Flood. Back in uh, mid-2000s, when Bruce Short was shopping his book, The Harsh Truth About Public Schools, around, where uh, who's going to publish it? Well, not Zondervan, not InterVarsity, not Word, you know, not Erdman's. Go through the list. What was the problem? Almost all of these Christian publishers were owned by bigger publishing companies that publish public school textbooks. So literally, they're on the take. They will not kick over their own rice bowl. And uh, therefore, Dr. Short, who wrote a very, very powerful, powerfully documented book, and he was a Stanford PhD and a Harvard Law School and a, uh, I forget what the name of the Fulbright scholar, I believe it is. He had all these things going for him. and. Uh, and what happened? They wouldn't touch his book with a 10-foot pole. We published it. So Chalcedon is kind of fearless in this respect. You could say, well, you have nothing to lose. Maybe. But we have everything to gain because the book is important. So we publish it when the other people would turn their nose up at it and wouldn't touch that book with a 10-foot pole because they saw it as hurting the parent company that published public school textbooks. We don't mind hurting the public school textbook market. And we think that would be a wonderful thing if it was harmed by Dr. Bruce Short's book. And I hope that we can go into a second and third edition soon enough. For those of you who are wondering who Otto Scott is, and maybe that's a name that's not familiar to you, you can hear his discussions with Dr. Rushduni on the Easy Chair series that's available at the Calcedon website. 
And a lot of people who knew both men, but now a lot of people who didn't know them except through this, these recordings, find it really interesting how they would spar with each other. And I think there is a good lesson for people today, especially on social media, respect the other person whose point of view may not be exactly like yours, but you can learn from them and they can learn from you. And sometimes those um, discussions, I know, Mark, you were in on some of them, were very spirited. They would, and they would sometimes disagree with I And I would concur with Martin's thesis that Otto was instrumental in, in his thinking, I think, on, on the free market, because Otto looked at it in uh, a little bit more practical terms sometimes. And, and sometimes the, their conversations would turn around politics. And, and, and Otto really recognized a lot of modern politics as bigger than the issues involved. And Otto believed in sticking with your friends and uh, taking sides with your friends because there was a reason why they were being attacked and it wasn't necessarily on the issue. So be careful about coming down firmly and ideologically when that ideological stand will actually help your opponent. So Otto had been in a lot of conflicts and over the years. And, and so he had just a different perspective that was very interesting. And you're also right about his view of the, he, he find rejecting the final apostasy perspective. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot your question, the, the, the lead in, uh, Andrea. Um, I don't remember it now either myself, actually, but that's fine. I was basically saying that these easy chairs are are available and it is, it's useful for people to surround themselves with people who don't necessarily think identically to them. And one of the ways in which they disagreed that I distinctly remember in the last days of the Soviet uh, Union, when Americans were puzzled as to what was going on. and I can remember even before that happening, Otto shaking his head and at my father, and my father would say, the Soviet Union's going to collapse. And Otto would say, they have total power. They can continue to exist because they have absolute power. And then what happened was, finally people got sick of the lines, and they finally said no. And just as Solzhenitsyn had said, they could have done years and years before, and the people finally said, we're not going to listen to you anymore. We're not going to obey you. They rolled out the tanks and the people still said no. And that was a turning point. And the Soviet Union collapsed of its own weight. And I'd seen how that conversation between Otto and my father about what was going to happen. And then it really actually played out in the newspapers. It was a kind of a fascinating, very memorable experience. Two very wise men. Yes, yes. And very different temperaments. Yes, very, very different temperaments. One like cats and one like dogs. <laughs> well, I remember when I first started reading the Calcine Report and I would read Otto's, his pieces, I didn't understand them. And then years later, I did. And I said to him, I said, I think you've gotten easier because I understand your writing now. And he assured me he was always as difficult as he intended to be that I must have gotten smarter. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a book that he co-authored that we published called The Great Christian Revolution. The central uh, section of it, more than two-thirds of the book, was written by Otto Scott. And then uh, R.J. Reshtuni wrote a chapter, or actually a, a subsection of several chapters about Arminianism. Mark, I think you wrote a chapter on, uh, on free will. 
in Scripture and Predestination. I wrote the foreword and John Lofton wrote the epilogue. So it was uh, five different contributors to that particular volume, which is still available uh, from Cassidy's Bookstore. If you want to get a good picture of a Christian historian at work, pick up The Great Christian Revolution. It's an amazing um, journey that Otto puts you through uh, from the times from, from the Christian era all the way to the restoration of Charles II and its implications for us today. It's a tour de force, truly. So we're as we're closing, because I think we're getting to the end of our time, um, I'm often guilty of when asked what was my favorite Rush Dooney book, it's usually the one I just finished reading. But one of the benefits I had in the years that I did the typesetting is I became very familiar with various, you know, commentaries and whatnot. And then when that book of poetry came out, which we entitled from one of his poems, The Luxury of Words, which sort of sums up Rush Dooney, he considered reading a luxury and and being able to do it. I can see throughout the various decades of the poems that were published, the work he was working on. Because sometimes you'll see a sentence or two that ended up becoming part of one of the poems. And I think, Mark, if I'm not mistaken, he never really intended anybody was going to read his poems. This was much more like an outlet for him than anything else. Yes. And a lot of those were just written on scraps of paper and he'd stick them in a book as a, as a bookmark or something. Whereas if he intended for something to be published, he took care of it and he put it in a file and he put it carefully on a shelf. Well, I'm glad you found the bookmarks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Martin, would you say that there, if you were going to recommend three Rush Dooney books that newcomers should jump into, what would you say? What would be your recommendations? I'll tell you what my favorite book is. It's not the most important book. And then I'll answer your question about the three to recommend for newcomers. I happen to enjoy reading Chariots of Prophetic Fire. I'm not the only one. R.C. Sproul Sr. himself acquired a copy. Susan Burns, I believe, gave it to him at a book facility on the East Coast, and he really appreciated that book and enjoyed it. So uh, very, very powerful read, showing that the era of syncretism of people mixing biblical faith with Baal worship, it's present today just as much as it was back then. But the social commentary that Dr. Rishoni gets out of that sequence is amazing. So I'd say that right now is my favorite book of Dr. Rushdoni. But I also say, I understand what you say, for whatever book of Rushdoni you're reading right now, <laughs> it's also your favorite book. Now, they say that uh, it would be valuable to get into law and liberty first. They call it Institutes Light for a reason. It kind of gets some of the themes, if you will, of the coming Institutes of Biblical Law. Uh, it's really a misnomer to call it Institutes Light because they don't really overlap. But the ideas that are expressed there and the, and the very straightforward explanations get you over all these humps and obstacles to adopting a biblical worldview and therefore and, and showing all the aspects of the humanistic worldview that we've swallowed. So I think that's a huge step that uh, law and liberty gives us in a fairly easy to read thing. It didn't originally have indexes or a pretty cover. Well, I would be insulting Joe Taylor, the original designer. It's actually a very interesting cover, but he was told black and white, that's all you have to work with. So uh, when our, our more recent communication director redid the cover, it was we had options that were not, and we had it indexed, et cetera, and, and we've typeset. But very, very, very valuable book. Another one that I, I find highly valuable is Sovereignty, because the attempt by the modern state to make itself out to be God, to uh, uh, assert sovereignty on its part, is a huge thing. And in that book, he walks through all the ways that sovereignty is, uh, we're at war over sovereignty between God and man and man and man, and how that plays out. And I think it's a singular study in this regard. 
a toss-up on the third choice, because if you're interested in education, it seems to me that either the philosophy of the Christian uh, curriculum or the, Americ- uh, the messianic character of American education from 1963 would be good choices. I noticed that uh, Barry North, in his review of McVicker's book on Christian Reconstruction, Rush Dooney, uh, he points out that that is probably the most stunning book on education ever written. It, it is seminal and will never be repeated. And just to show how in-depth that book is, Dr. North pointed out, he doesn't get around to John Dewey until chapter 15. So there's 14 chapters before we get to John Dewey. Most people think public, modern public education begins with John Dewey. And he said, no, no, there's a bunch of other people way before that point. It was a big freight train prior to Dewey. Dewey was just sitting on the ride forward. So that's huge if you're interested in education. If you're interested in the positive aspect of education, how should you structure your homeschool curriculum or how should a Christian school do their curriculum? And the philosophy of the Christian curriculum would be a, a good read. But ultimately, uh, if that's not your bag, as they say, uh, I would say that uh, my third book, aside from those interested in education, would probably be Foundations of Social Order, Creeds and Councils of the Early Church. Why? Because now when we talk about things like the Trinity, we realize that people got their heads kicked in and were murdered over it. That is not just an abstract theological doctrine, that life and death issues were involved in the statement, uh, the the Chalcedon uh, Trinitarian formula that to suddenly put a wedge between God and man so that man cannot uh, seize godhood and become God in the form of a king, that's huge. And the kings resent that, and people who hold power resent that. And so we see that theological ideas about the nature of Christ have tremendous social and cultural and political implications. Even critic, those who are critical of Dr. Rashtuni, like uh, Dr. Mary Worthen, said he got Chalcedon right. He understood the 451 Council of Chalcedon better by pointing out the political applications, he says, the theologians got it wrong. They criticized Rush. He says, oh, you saw politics in there, isn't any. Mary Worthen said, Rush Dooney had it correct. The theologians had it wrong. But Rush Dooney alone saw what was actually at stake and why that was such a big deal back in the fifth century. So that's why I think that's a, probably my third choice would really be that. Unless focus on education is your bag, like I said. Right. In that case, we had two choices, either the, the demolition job on public school, or what should I do now constructively for my children or my grandchildren, as the case may be. Right. Mark, we'll close with your favorite book. I mean, you've been surrounded by them from the time you were young, and you've gone through them. Do you have one that stands out to you as being most important in your own life and most useful for other people getting into the subject? People ask me that. I don't really have a favorite book. I'd, I'd say that uh, when I was younger, two of the books that I think shaped my thinking, I think they were particularly influential on me, is This Independent Republic, which I read in high school. And that kind of put a new perspective on a lot of the things I was hearing in history class at a Christian uh, school. And, and uh, he said it in a different way sometimes in a better way. It was during the whole civil rights movement when he, when he has chaptered there on, on equality and just his simple statement that that's a mathematical term and that uh, nobody's equal to anyone else. People are individuals. And it kind of put the whole civil rights movement and a lot of politics of the time into perspective for me. So that was very eye-opening for me. And then also foundations of social order helped me understand a, a lot of the... Uh, of the history of the church and why, you know, and a lot of theology. And it's, I think the foundations of social order is interesting. When we think 
we've got it hard today. The church took four and a half centuries to come down firmly on the incarnation of Jesus Christ and Trinitarianism. And so we can't look at things today and says, we're, we're, you know, boy, we could fix things overnight if only people, everybody would read these books and agree to these, these points. Uh, men, men are sinners. And when they mess up their thinking, they, they mess up their social orders and their institutions. It takes a lot of time sometimes to straighten those things out. And if the early church, they slugged it out though, even when they lost, they kept fighting and eventually they came out on top. And even when they came out on top, officially the council of Chalcedon, as my father notes, the Catholic church kept rebelling against Chalcedon because the Catholic church really wanted to assume a lot of incorrect supremacy. They didn't like the limitations put on a man because of Chalcedon. If Jesus Christ is the only mediator, then that limits all other human institutions, and the Roman Catholic Church didn't really like that. So it explains a tremendous amount of the course of human history and why we have the problems we have today. They're systemic because man is a sinner. Well, gentlemen, thank you. Um, I guess the two words we could say is read Rush Dooney, and um, I'd like to acknowledge those people who have um, written in and made comments how they appreciate our podcast. We certainly enjoy doing it, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Chalcedon Podcast. To learn more about the ministry of Chalcedon or to discover thousands of great Christian books, sermons, lectures, videos, newsletters, and more, just visit chalcedon.edu today.